Our first Bible reading is Proverbs chapter 4. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me and he said to me, take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom, get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honour you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. Listen, my son, accept what I say, and the years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it, do not travel on it, turn from it, and go on your way. For they can't rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep until they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Jenny's going to bring our second reading. The second reading today is from James, chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, and that's on page 1044. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. 
All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thank you, God. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks, Chris. As Rowena mentioned earlier, God willing, I'm going to get ordained in February 18th, and I'd love to invite you guys. It'll be at the cathedral about 10 a.m., excuse me. I'll wear a dress, and people will put their hands on me. It'll be a thing. So if you want to come, we'd love to have you there. I'll send out more details as we get closer to it. But today, we are talking about our words, about our words. In high school, um, one of my favorite TV shows was Scrubs. Any Scrubs fans in the Oh, wow. Okay, all right. Main character JD at one point, he says, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will hurt forever. And I, I remember going, ha, ha, ha. Oh, <laughs> and just realized how true that was in my life, that, that words have power. It can feel like, you know, they're just things that we throw out into the ether and then they dissipate, but they lodge themselves within us and have a deep effect on who we are and the direction of our life. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life and death. And those who live it will eat its fruit. Words have power. James's illustration is a great one. Giant ships. Look up here. Here's a cruise ship. I don't even think he had ships this big. But a ship like that is enormous. You see it trying to get out of the harbor, and they have to get tugboats to move that thing, right? But when they're out on the open water, what is it that can direct its, its movement? A small rudder in the scheme of things. A tiny portion of the whole has the power to direct its entire movement, so it is with the tongue in our lives, very small muscle, very hidden part of our bodies. You don't really see it unless you're kind of gross and open your mouth a little too wide. And yet, it has power. I can testify that, that words have changed the course of my life. There are words that people have spoken to me and over me um, from wise and godly people that genuinely changed the course and direction of my life, not just professionally, but in terms of who I am, in my character, in, in my personhood. But at the same time, there are words that I can still hear that really hurt me from years ago that have had their way of laying wounds on my soul, words that, that to this day still haunt me. And I wonder if you're the same. Actually, I don't wonder. I know you're the same. I know that, that you have been shaped good and bad, evil and morally perfect, whatever it might be. All of who you are has been shaped so much by your words. The person sitting next to you on that pew is carrying an unseen weight of the words and the way that people have spoken that's formed their identity. I don't know if we acknowledge this enough that the way we speak to one another is not just an important thing. It's one of the most important things. Now, we're very quick to acknowledge the hurt that words have caused us, but my question is, do we have the honesty to own the words that we've spoken to others? 
We're very, very quick to be defensive, right? We're very, very quick to lay forth some harm that someone has done to us, to show how we are so justified in ourselves because of what they've spoken and said to us. But when it comes to the words that we speak and the way that we've impacted other people's lives, we're very quick to, to diminish it, to go, well, I was going through some things and I, I actually was just like not in a good place in myself and I didn't really mean it like that. And yet the person that received those words is sitting there reeling under the weight of what we've spoken. Do you realize that those wounds that you carry within yourself, you have inflicted upon other people? It's a big weight to bear. And if we try and say that we aren't like that, we have completely misled ourselves and misunderstood what we're doing as we do relationships in life. It's, it's a reality. The jury stands in the trial of our poisonous speech and it's packed and every single vote is cast as guilty not one of us is able to claim that we have managed it. If you still got your Bibles open to James 3, it is strong. James 3 verse 6, the tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Right? Okay, James, we hear you, man. <laughs> Not only is the way that we speak something that defines and shapes who we are in this life, the words here are saying that they have an eternal impact. To stand before the living God and give an account for the way that you have spoken and used your tongue will leave you with, in the language here, the fires of hell, the judgment of God. There is no one perfect enough. Now, I have so many things that I can remember of people who have spoken to me and the wounds that I feel, but I probably have more words that I deeply regret speaking to this day things that I've said that I just wish I could go back and take away. And I can't. Because like a fire, a spark that sets off the bushfire, you might regret throwing your cigarette out the window, but once that bush is on fire, you can't take it back. There's, this is the reality that we stand in. But this is equally the beauty of how wonderful the grace of Jesus is. There's this, this really incredible dynamic in the story of Jesus as he comes forth to be murdered, right? He gets seized in the garden. He gets brought before the Sanhedrin. He then gets brought before Pontius Pilate. He then gets brought before the crowd. And at the end of all of that process culminates in his death. And at each step of that process, he is interrogated. He is questioned. Did you say this? Did you say that? Are you this? Are you that? And how does Jesus respond? Silence. Silence. James 3 verse 2 says, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. And that is Jesus, completely perfect, able to keep his whole body in check. It's confronted with this moment where he stands innocent, condemned to die for others' guilt. He chooses silence. He chooses not to use his words so that as we stand before that same, that same trial, not of men and women who would you know, condemn us, but the infinite eternal God, he sets us free. His silence covers our speaking. His innocence covers our guilt. And so knowing the grace of Jesus is the only thing that can set you free from that shame and that guilt of the words that you've spoken. And it's the only thing that can really meet you in your pain 
as you wrestle with your past and the way that people have spoken over you. The grace of Jesus is everything that we need, and we cannot move forward without it. And frankly, it's just the gospel. It's, you can come at any topic in any way, and you'll see the way that Jesus meets us in our mess and covers us with his love. He forgives us of our sins. He purifies us of our unrighteousness. He promises us eternal future. He holds on to us tightly and says, you are a son and a daughter of the living God. This is the gospel. But we're just zoning in on the way that we speak. And it's so important that we recognize even when you are sitting there laboring under shame because of something you've said, God has forgiven you. Someone needs to hear this from something in your past. God has forgiven you. The the slate is clean. Now, you can't take those words back. You can't fix what you've done in another person. But you can know the peace of God, and you can entrust that person into his care. So that's the reality of our tongues. It's, It's really quite a bleak picture in James. We kind of suck at it. It's going to set our lives on fire. But Jesus loves us. Jesus covers us. Jesus holds tight to us. You know, I can think of the moment when I met Jesus. It was this sense of complete conviction that I was unworthy to stand in the presence of God. And then the preacher got to grace, and I just felt waves of peace wash through my soul. That's, that's the grace of Jesus. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, the peace of God. But equally, I became a Christian at that point in year eight or nine, I can't remember. And then I still had a tongue like a sailor. <laughs> you know, high school, public high school in year nine as a boy, you're going to say some things that you probably regret. And so I guess it's the question that we all need to wrestle with is like, cool, we've been saved by the grace of Jesus, but is there any hope for the way that we could speak in the future? Is there any way that we could change the story, change the narrative? Well, I think, I think there is. In James 3, despite how bleak it is, you have a look at verse 9 through 12, and it talks about how with our tongues we praise God, but we also curse people. But can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? Implied is, well, no, they can't. And as the people of God, we are supposed to be people who only have good flowing from us. So as Jesus said in the kids' talk, right, where, you know, thorns can't bear fruit, but a fig tree can bear figs. And so the hope is that God can transform us to become a tree worthy of bearing fruit. It's John 15, abide in Jesus, and in that place you will bear fruit. In John 8, it says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. In Romans 8, it says, the Spirit has set us free from the law of sin and death. You are no longer bound by your sin. Yeah, you'll stuff it up still, but there's an opportunity for us as the people of God to be different because we have the power of the living God dwelling within us. And his, his duty and love for us is to change us and to transform us. And so it's not enough to go, thanks, Jesus, I'm saved, but I'm just going to keep on doing how I'm doing. If you've met Jesus in his grace, he wants to transform you. Like a master sculptor takes a big hunk of rock that's nothing impressive to look at, and he slowly chisels away until there's a masterpiece. That's what God wants to do in you. And a part of that is our speech. So if you want to flip back over to Proverbs 4, I love Proverbs 4. Proverbs 4.23 is one of my life verses. I have a handful of verses that I just keep coming back to. God keeps putting on my radar. And here's what it says, Proverbs 4.23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything in your outer life that people can see and, and behold of you is a product of what's inside of you. You can fool people for a little while, 
You can put the mask on in certain situations and what you project is different from what's going on inside. But at the very core of who you are, you cannot get away from the fact that your life is a product of your inner life. And that's true of Christians just as much as it is non-Christians. It's true of those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus that what's dwelling in your heart, what you have cultivated in your life will come out in the way that you speak and in the way that you live. And so that's why this proverb, in a whole chapter of a million proverbs, starts with, above all else. There is nothing more important than this. Listen. (laughs) He's trying to get your attention. Above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart. For from it, sorry, I'm going from a different translation. For everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from it. Jesus' ministry, his entire thing was about the heart. Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they observed the the letter, the degree of how much they could obey and do this X, Y, and Z. And Jesus just said, throw it all away. Love God and love people. That's the heart of the law. Jesus cares about your heart. Are you taking care of your heart? Now, Valentine's Day is coming up. I'm not talking about the soppy, loving heart kind of vibe that we have in our culture. The biblical heart is the center of your being like the control center of your life? Are you guarding who you are? Like a Rottweiler in the impound lot of those you know, movies where someone's trying to steal a car or whatever, and it's just like, rawr, rawr, and it just like attacks anybody that walks into that property. Are you guarding your heart? Are you looking after the things that make you, you? We lock our houses when we leave. We lock our cars when we park them on the street. We put our money in a secure bank account because we know that they're valuable and we want to take care of them but far too many of us don't guard ourselves. We don't think about the things that are forming us and inputting on who we are. People often ask me, Nick, as a pastor, why do you think Christians are so so terrible sometimes? And then sometimes you walk down the street and you meet non-Christians and they're actually really kind and good people. Like, what's, what's, what's the deal there? Is there a is maybe Jesus isn't real. It's not that Jesus isn't real. It's that even Christians can fail to guard their heart and become people who don't resemble the Christ that they follow. Gandhi once said, I like your Jesus, but I don't like your Christians. We need to be a people who look after our hearts. So two immediate thoughts for us to learn how to guard our hearts. That's going to really impact our speech. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of this and that, this is the central thing. Guard your hearts and it'll change everything. First question for you is, what do you allow into your heart? What do you allow to speak into your life? Maybe you want to get serious and do an audit and calculate the content you consume and the voices you listen to. Because there are no neutral inputs into your life. Every, Every voice is a voice seeking to shape you. Even if you reject that voice, it still had an impact on who you are. There is no neutral inputs in your life. Each vote is each each is a vote that casts the direction of your inner life. So what do you listen to? What podcasts do you consume? What TV shows do you watch? How much time do you spend streaming? You know, I don't know if your phone does this, but it tells you your screen time at the end of the week. What's the number that you've got on your on your smartphone? How much time are we consuming content? How much time are we allowing all these other things to have their way with our inner life rather than thoughtfully guarding our own hearts and pressing into who God would have for us? 
Bonhoeffer, I'm a big fan, he, it's going to come up on the screen, this quote, he says, we are so afraid of silence that we chase ourselves from one event to the next in order not to have, a, have to spend a moment alone with ourselves, in order not to have to look at ourselves in the mirror. He's writing that in the 1940s before mass marketing and the internet. How much more for us that we can find ourselves just so, so um, spoken to by loud voices to the point that our inner lives become an oblivion where we don't even really know ourselves. When you realize the only time you have to think is on the toilet, but then you instinctively pull out your phone anyway, you know that there's a problem, right? What is it that we're allowing to shape our hearts? The problem is they're all fairly minuscule and unimpressive things. It's just entertainment. I like entertainment. It's just a podcast. It's interesting. And they're not necessarily bad in themselves. But when our hearts are more filled by the things of this world than the things of Christ, it's going to have its way on who we are. And it's going to have its way on how we speak. I can tell you that when I don't spend time with the Lord for a few days, it used, you could tell from the way that I speak. I'm sure Beck knows. I'm sure my kids realize that I'm more impatient and I'm more, you know, all over the place because what's in your heart matters and it flows out into who you are. So what do you allow into your heart? But then on the flip side, what do you intentionally feed and nurture and fill your heart with? Regular devotional times, anchoring yourself in Jesus each day, music that lifts your heart to Jesus. Maybe you're not into worship music, but that's cool. Regular prayer throughout the day, attentiveness to God's presence in your life, regular friendships that breathe life into your soul and don't take from you, your frequency and your posture when you come to church or connect group, you're opening your home to love on others and seek Jesus together. There are a million things that we can and sometimes do that enrich our souls and fill us and shape us to be more like Jesus. This verse here is so important. Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. I don't know what the answer is for your life because there are no hard and fast answers, but I do know the principle. Your heart's the most valuable thing you have. Guard it. Look after it. So that's the principle, right? It's, it's what's in that comes out. It's like a cycle. It kind of goes from your heart out into the world, and then things out in the world come into your heart. And so the, the way to fix the process is to stick some locks on your heart and go, okay, I'm going to guard it. I'm going to guard what comes in, and I'm going to guard what I put into it to make sure that I come to love Christ and live in His way more than ever before. But at the end of the day, once you get your heart in that place and you foster those spiritual rhythms, we still have to come to grips with some of the things that we've embodied in the way that we speak. Because we still speak in ways that don't align with Jesus, even if we're reading our Bibles in the morning. And we still say things that hurt other people, even when we come to church every Sunday, right? There's still at some point we need to come face to face, as Bonhoeffer said, in a mirror with who we are. We need to come to grips with those things that we do and the things that we speak that are actually really ungodly and unhelpful. So the way to do that is to realize from where we're starting. We need to have a posture of humility that's willing to realize, maybe I've got some stuff in my life that's not good. You can't, you can't let God do a hard work in your life if you're not willing to own the things in your life that aren't where they should be. We need humility. Ephesians 4, be completely humble and gentle. Philippians 2, 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus. Colossians 3, 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, clothe yourselves with humility. So we need a posture of humility to recognize there's a work that God needs to do in us. But then we need to realize that there's a goal in the Christian life, and that is love. If there's a single virtue that matters over all else, it's love. 
Jesus' death for us was the greatest act of love. Why? Because God is love. 1 John 4, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. We love because he first loved us. Rubber hits the road. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Ephesians 5.1, walk in the way of love. John 15.10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. How do we speak well as people who love Jesus? We're humble. We know we're not perfect. And we consistently seek to love people. That's, that's the bedrock, right? That's the New Testament picture, taking all the Proverbs and bringing them together in this, this Christian life of speech. So how do we do it? Well, there's a famous verse that we often go to, Ephesians 4.15. It says, speak the truth in love. Have you heard that verse before? It's often the one that gets spoken on and preached on when it comes to speaking. And it's really important. It is really important because we are a people who are rooted in, in the truth of the gospel. We never want to give that up, but we're a people of love and we want to love people. So we speak the truth in love. My fear is we abuse this verse in the church. My fear is that we use this verse incorrectly so that we can delude ourselves into speaking harsher words than we should. I fear that we as a church, not we as this church, but we as the church, have such a terrible reputation in modern society, sometimes you know, unfairly, but other times because we, we, we speak the truth in love. We keep the love part under wraps, right? We speak the truth because we love the truth. But we think that because the truth involves someone coming to Jesus and someone's life being changed, we think that that means it's loving for me to yell the truth at them. But this isn't just talking about love as the end goal of truth. This is talking about love as the manner in which we communicate our truth. This is not an excuse for us to speak harsh words because it's correcting a brother or sister in the way that they need to change their life. Yes, we do need constructive criticism. Yes, the Bible talks about rebuke. But love is not just the goal. Love is the means and the manner. Well, the pushback might be like, well, Jesus spoke some pretty hard words to people, didn't he? Pharisees, teachers of the law. Absolutely did. He absolutely did. But that's not what Ephesians is talking about. Ephesians is talking about brothers and sisters building each other up into the body of Christ. You don't build a building by smashing the bricks with a sledgehammer. That's not how it works. Jesus did have some, some words to speak, but he had those words to speak to the religious, the whitewashed tombs, the people who had a monopoly on truth and a deficiency in love. We need to capture love not just as a vague thing out there that Christians are supposed to be in the direction of some stuff, but in the very words that we speak, in the tone that we use, in the way that we go about having our conversations with one another. It's a posture, not just a, an end goal. How we speak is just as important as what we speak. So we need to think hard. What does it truly mean to speak in love? We get the truth thing. We got the Bible. How do we speak the truth in love? The famous proverb that says the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think it's true. Constructive criticism is not an excuse to do away with kindness and gentleness or encouragement. It's not an excuse to flee from hard words. It's not an excuse to um, not tell someone where they're walking in sin, or it's not an excuse to um, put things that are not going well to the side. We need to have frank and honest conversations. But when you want to pull someone aside, whoever it is for whatever reason, 
They need to be able to look you in the eye and see the love that is there. And then when they start speaking, and even if it's a hard word, there needs to be this sense of, I'm saying this because you are someone I care so deeply about, and I love you so much. We need love to be the foundation as well as the goal. But quickly, I just want to finish by talking about a couple of specific speeches that I think tend to hit us in the church. That is gossip and grumbling. Gossip is speaking about others when they aren't present in a way that you never would if they were there. Is that fair? I think that's right. Proverbs 16.28 says, A perverse person stirs up conflict, and a gossip separates close friends. Now, church gossip is different, right? Church gossip doesn't look like high school gossip. Like, did you see him making out with her behind the hall? Like, it's not like that, right? Not as, well, it shouldn't be. <laughs> if you hear that, that's very problematic. It's different because church gossip often speaks about people behind their backs with like a spiritual tone. It's, you know, it's with the concern for, you know, oh, I just am really worried about this in them or did you know that this is going on in their life and da-da-da-da-da. And it's actually at the end of the day, just sanctified gossip, where we're talking about people in a way that we would never speak if they were in the room. It can happen when it comes to um, ministries and groups and leaders, in a sense that we can hide behind the fact that this is not going how I would like it to go, and I just want to, I just want to grow, and I want it to look like this. But at the end of the day, we don't step forward and say, hey, leader, I love you. This is what I see not going well, and I would love to see this change, right? There's a difference between the gossip that sits in the back room and the word that actually brings truth with love and hopefully change. Gossip is when we are going round and around under the guise of Bible language, but still talking about people in a way that if they actually were standing there in the room, you wouldn't speak it in the way that you spoke it. And I put that out there because I think we don't think we're gossiping when often we are. And so sometimes we need to just stop and go, how do I speak about the other people in my life? How do I speak about people in my church, in my connect group, in my team that I serve with, whatever it might be? So that's gossip. And then there's grumbling. Grumbling is similar. The word in in Greek is gongusmos. It's literally behind the scenes talk. It's expressing complaints or accusations in bitterness or anger in a way that perpetuates bitterness in anger. Philippians 2 verse 14 says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. I love this. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. You want to shine like a star? Stop grumbling. <laughs> it's interesting. I would never have picked that, but it's, it's true. And this is the tricky thing, that there is an important place for criticism, criticism of leaders, criticism of one another, and there is such an important place for pointing out our inconsistencies. We cannot allow hypocrisy in the church. Everyone who embodies what it means to follow Jesus needs to live with integrity. The difference between grumbling and rebuke is one is sitting back when, you know, it doesn't actually achieve anything, out of bitterness or anger, just ruminating potentially with others about the problem. Whereas if there really is a problem, the biblical answer is to step forward in love and to look that person in the eye and say, here's here's what I see Here's what I experience. I love you, and I want to see you grow. I want to see you live in this, and I want to, exp- I want to grow too. And it's, it's, a, it's a conversation, and it's not from bitterness or anger. We've already decided that the foundation is love, right? I think these two things tend to find their way into the church quite easily. You see it in all of the Old Testament, right? Israel in the desert is the grumbling generation, 40 years wandering around. You see it through the New Testament church as you look in Acts and you look at some of the disagreements, we need to, to put our finger on some of these things in ourselves. I think often we throw rocks from a distance in a way that perpetuates the problem instead of 
inputs meaningfully in the problem. And I include myself in this completely. We need to guard our hearts from the underlying thing that results in gossip and slander, and that is the bitterness, the anger, the desire to just be in people's lives without any investment, all of these things. So finally, here are some three positive practical places for us to grow in our speech. One, we need to learn how to say sorry. We need to learn how to say sorry. James 3 verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. Thank you. That's a good word. We all stumble in many ways, and we will never be able to grow if we don't have the humility to own when we don't do it right. There needs to be moments where we just go, I I stuffed it up. I didn't say that right. Or even like, you know, that hard word that you're giving me, totally true. I see that what you're saying is so important. To be able to actually grow, we need to learn how to say sorry. The second one is this, and this is words from James, we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Now, most of the stupid things that I end up saying is because I like the sound of my voice, I speak out of a reaction rather than out of thoughtfulness, or I'm hot-headed and want to just correct or respond to someone because I think I'm right and they're wrong. But the people who you sit in a room with, and when they speak, it's like, oh yeah, that's it, that's, that's, that's what we needed to hear, that's fine. Who are those people? They're the people who are quietly listening, hearing everything that you're saying, not because they're just waiting for their turn to talk, but because they just genuinely care, and then filtering out all the noise and not focusing on themselves, they offer something useful. It's incredible when those people speak. How do you become a person like that? Slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry. And lastly, number three, speak for others, don't speak for yourself. That's, that's the whole New Testament ethic, to be selfless like Jesus was selfless. But how, why don't we do it with our words? Why do we respond how we respond? Why are we so defensive? Why are we so upset when we come into conflict with one another? I think it's because we've got a subconscious selfishness. It's not malicious as if we're looking to like harm other people for our own good, but I think we just have this innate defensiveness. But the way that Jesus spoke to people was incredible. Do you realize most of the interactions in the Gospels were interruptions? People just kind of hitting him up as he was going about his business. He was patient and he stopped. He looked them in the eye and he loved them as they deserved to be loved. Let me finish by asking you a question. What would a church look like whose every word was spoken thoughtfully, carefully, gently, and purposefully in love? I think we'd start to embody what Jesus had in Matthew 5. We would shine like a city on a hill. It would be incredible. So let's stop now. I want to pray and ask that God would grow us. And I mean us because I've got some growing to do too. Let's pray. Father, thank you that our failure in our speech does not disqualify us from the kingdom because we only enter the kingdom through your son, Jesus. Thank you that you have brought life and love into this church. Thank you for the rich conversations that exist and the relationships that build one another up. We ask as people who are still working it out and still growing into the people that you would have us be, would you please, Holy Spirit, fill us with humility with patience, with gentleness, with kindness, with self-control? Would you reveal to us those things in ourselves that aren't quite right? Would you help us in the freedom of Jesus to step forward into something different? We love you and are thankful that no matter how well we go at our, our changing in life, you are steady and you are there and you hold us firm. So we pray all of this in your name and ask for your help.